Hello and welcome. Here he goes again. I'm Bartleby Knee-High, and I'm here with my brother Artemis. I wish you would find another co-host. I've tried. It's never the same. Perhaps you gave up too soon. We're the Kinetic Paranormal Society. A pair of socks in a magic wardrobe, traveling through time and space, investigating the supernatural. You don't really need me for this, Bartleby, do you? You're listening to Metacosmos. And, uh, yeah, Artemis, I not only need you, like, I super duper need you, because I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of this show is actually planned around you. Like, you're kind of the central cog of Metacosmos. That can't possibly be true. I barely want to do Metacosmos. Well, uh, I got some news for you. It's it's true. Yeah, like, everything that we're doing here is either something for you to, like, help you feel good about something you are feeling bad about, or it's something that I'm doing for you, making you feel bad about something that you're running away from and that you should probably deal with. So, yeah, this show's for you, Artemis. This one's for you. No, this is not how things are done for people, Bartleby. Well, moving on. First of all, I want to make a retraction. Oh, really? Yeah, I misspoke in the last episode, and I think it's important that I go on the record saying what I really feel about something, and I misspoke about it. Well, please do tell. What did you misspeak on? Okay, well, you were talking about kitsch, and, you know, that's cool, and maybe I shouldn't have interrupted you so soon, but we were talking about kitsch, and it's use in propaganda, and I made a statement saying that we don't have to worry about all of the propaganda because multiplicity was going to, like, you know, make it so that there was so much stuff that there was no meaning to the propaganda is what I implied. Yes. But I meant to have a sarcastic tone. I did not mean to say that in a way that people thought that I actually meant it. And I want to retract the sincerity of my tone from the previous episode. I want everyone to know that I was very sarcastic about the idea that we were going to be fine from propaganda because of the multiplicity. Is that really a retraction? You know, Artemis, I'm not too big to admit when I'm wrong. And I'm also, like, ready to, like, hear you finish talking about kitsch now because I interrupted you to say something not sarcastically enough. And that was rude of me and also inaccurate. And, you know, I'm ready to account for my mistakes. I'm here to do it. And I would actually like to use this moment to invite you to tell us a little bit more about Kitsch. Ooh, a little more art history lesson then. Yeah, yeah. We're doing an art history series of episodes. Like right now, this is number two in them. Is this in the secret calendar? Don't worry about it. Tell us about Kitsch. Oh, right. Well, Clement Greenberg, he saw Kitsch as being anything that used realism post-1900 because by then the grasps of the understanding of realistic artwork were so simple and so not challenging to the creator that 
kitsch artwork was very much just about being kind of cutesy. Like a valentine card. Yes, actually, that's very accurate. Yeah. Happy Valentine's Day, Artemis. Is that today? No, but I love you. And I got you a valentine card. Yes, this is very kitsch. Yeah. So anyways, as I was saying, kitsch is very often saccharine and sweet, but very much often superficial because it doesn't explore any deeper than the little joys of, oh, look, here's a little pleasant scene. Isn't this nice? Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to you too, Artemis. Oh, so yes, that's pretty much what we would call kitsch. Little knickknacks you might have, little tchotchkes as they call them that you might keep on the shelf, reminding you of a summer day or a warm, cozy place in the winter. That's all kitsch, very kitsch. And Greenberg saw it all as propaganda, really, because it served as a way of having people not look at how hard things are in life, ignore it, and just look at this happy little picture here. Don't think about the pain. Let it all go away. And he very much preferred the way that modern art would challenge us to look further. Is that postmodern art? No one knows the difference. So anyways, yeah, perfect example. Yes. Kitsch is really easy on the eyes and on the just, oh, isn't that pleasant? And honestly, I don't think there's anything wrong with a little bit of giving someone something pleasant on their soul to get them through their day, a little pick-me-up. But it's so important that we challenge ourselves, Bartleby, that we don't just let ourselves fall languishing to the side of contentment. So, you know, like, would that include stuff like doing a podcast with your brother, even though it's challenging? Don't put words into my mouth. Yeah. So there you go. Sometimes you got to challenge yourself. And sometimes you got to admit when you're wrong. Winkity, winkity. And I'm not too big to do that. I am someone who's totally capable of admitting when I'm wrong, unlike some people in the world. Are you talking about me? No, I'm just talking about some dictators of fallen governments that maybe toppled entire ideologies for generations. What are you talking about? I'm kind of implying that, like, Stalin was really insecure and didn't like admitting he was wrong. Wait, Stalin? Joseph Stalin? How did we start talking about Stalin? Well, okay, so... One of the things that we did not discuss in our art history lesson last week, we were just talking about what was going on in the U.S. and Europe's art scene. But there was an entire art scene in Eastern Europe and Eurasia and specifically in the Soviet Union. And Stalin... This is completely insane. You're pivoting straight to Stalin. Is this what you call structure? Please bear with me. Stalin, he was like, I don't like the way that the arts make me look pretty stupid when they say things about me being a dictator. I don't like how that makes me feel. Um, wait, can we just take a step back for a moment and maybe actually catch listeners up to what you're talking about? Yeah, actually, that's why you're here, Artemis. Please, take the floor. Let's tell everyone about why Stalin was insecure. Oh, right then. Well, 
I think we should first point out that in the Soviet Union, during the 20s, it was a boon for avant-garde artists, especially in film and experimental sound and in philosophy. The artists were suddenly relieved of all of the need to propagate the status quo for the ruling class. And they were said, hey, artists, no one's telling you what establishment you must reinforce. So just, you know, go do your things. And the budding Soviet artists certainly did. They ran forth and they came up with new ways of seeing the world that were very much in line with the rhetoric that the government needed at the time because they wanted to create a rhetoric that would make communism sound wonderful. And the artists were having such a good time that they made it sound grand. So in that scenario, if everything was going great for them until, well, the Soviet Union started developing its own need for rhetoric. Oh, did they? Yes, because when World War II ended, it put the Soviet Union in a space where suddenly they were at odds with the Western world and the United States, and they began dictating what the artists could create. Joseph Stalin was a very outgoing proponent for seeing writers and cultural contributors as engineers of the soul. And yes, to your point, Stalin was quite insecure and was very afraid of artists who did not engineer souls as he prescribed. And how is that, Artemis? Through socialist realism, Stalin prescribed all artwork in the Soviet Union had to depict society as a whole and groups of people elevating each other and only through realism. They weren't allowed to do it through any other art style. No symbolism. He was probably afraid of symbolism because then it could be interpreted and say not nice things about him. And since he was so insecure, he probably thought that all symbolism said not nice things about him. Very likely. So you see, socialist realist art was all designed to make the Soviet Union and Stalin look wonderful. But it was all a very superficial depiction. So basically, it was kitsch. Wait. Does that mean that the U.S. World War II posters were all, like, a form of socialist realism? Well, it was certainly kitsch. But now that you mention it, perhaps it was socialist realism as well. It technically meets the definition. And it does look rather similar to the Soviets' expressions of socialist realism of people working hard in the fields and doing what's best for society. Not that different than River to Rosie and the Uncle Sam telling everyone that he wants them. Yeah, huh. This is why Greenberg said that all kitsch was propaganda. And that's how we got to the subject matter that you, uh, wouldn't say misspoke. Mistoned. Mistoned. Yes. Well, anyways, that's where we got to that state. And actually, it's quite interesting because the social realism was such a all-encompassing state of the Soviet culture that the CIA in America, noticed this and realized just how juxtaposed socialist realism was to abstract expressionism. Ooh, I'm so glad you mentioned this, Artemis, because it seems that you got the memo. Memo? Just keep going. Well, all right. So the CIA, they looked at the situation in Russia with their socialist realism and they said, well, so drab. And it's rather repressive when you compare it to the vibrancy that was seen in artists like Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko. 
Yeah, we were talking about them last week. Yes, we didn't mention specifically that they were abstract expressionists. Yeah, we kind of like ran right over that, didn't we? But I'll just mention it now, because that abstract expressionism was such an essence of everything that the Soviet Union was failing to be. And so, the CIA saw this as an opportunity to elevate abstract expressionism, to put it on the center stage, put a spotlight on it, and make the Soviet Union look quite, what's the word for it? Ineffectual in comparison to the U.S. government. Ooh, yeah. I would go with impotent on that one. So, as I was saying, the U.S. government was suddenly wanting to bring all of this expressionist to the stage. They even funded an art show, but this is when they found that the mission of funding abstract expressionism would not be so easy in a country that was so committed to being anti-communist. Why so? Well, many of these artists that were exploring far-out ideas that went deeper into their own souls and disassembled themselves. Yeah, the deconstruction of the self. Yes. These artists often had what would be called leftist views, sympathetic to communism. Yeah. And it was very hard to get the government full of politicians who hated communism to be sympathetic to these artists. And when they did fund one show in particular, there was quite a bit of public backlash because the people said, why are our tax dollars being used to fund this academic nonsense? Snooty, snooty stuff like you're into? Yes, snooty, snooty stuff like I'm into. Yeah. So, you, like, people have always thought that the academic stuff was totally insufferable. Maybe to a degree. And you know how, like, Greenberg was saying that kitsch was all propaganda? In a way, would you say that when the U.S. government was funding abstract expressionism, that it also was propaganda, but instead of going to the kitsch side of the spectrum, it fell on the snooty, snooty side of the spectrum. No, I would not say that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is a topic we could explore. Maybe it's a topic we can explore another time. Another time in a few minutes. In another episode, perhaps. Artemis, did you say you're looking forward to a future episode? So, as I was saying, the CIA wanted to funnel money to all of these artists like Jackson Pollock and, and Mark Rothko and whatnot, and they needed to do so in a way that was not apparent. And so, this is how they used something called the Congress for Cultural Freedom, and a magazine called Encounter that was published in Europe. And they channeled money into this magazine and into this Congress for Cultural Freedom and in other institutions like these. And from there, the money was then distributed out to the artists. Sometimes they would approach a very rich person, and say, we want you to pose as a philanthropist, and we want you to spend large chunks of money that we give you on art, and we will tell you which artists to give it to, and wink, wink, give it to the abstract expressionists. And so, they were funneling money through these channels. Huh. 
isn't it interesting that they created a system so that the government could distribute money to artists so that artists could pursue their art in a way that allowed for them to grow and prosper and that it was though through many channels it was kind of like a form of socialism or communism to be like hey we're going to use government money to distribute to the people so that the people can foster their creativity isn't that ironic oh yes actually now that you mention it that's very true yeah and you know personally i think it was a lost opportunity for the soviet union in what way well okay so if they had maybe followed a similar channel like there were oligarchs in the soviet union they had their little like high society people that were like doing their high society stuff well they weren't supposed to it was supposed to be an equal playing field for everyone well yeah but they had them and imagine if they had used the same system and they had said hey we're going to drop some money in the hands of these rich people and they're going to go out and buy a bunch of art and they're going to foster the arts in our country in the same manner that's all expressive as the U.S. government. Imagine they'd done that. What a lost opportunity. Well, they couldn't do that because they were claiming they didn't have an oligarchy. They were pretending they didn't exist. Yeah, but look how useful it was for the U.S. Like they were just able to foster an entire art movement this way. The, the Soviets, they had an oligarchy. They could have done that. But, well, it would have put a highlight for everyone in the country that the Soviet Union wasn't actually as communist as they claimed to be. Uh, okay, but they lost the Cold War while not being as communist as they claimed to be. So maybe they could have won the Cold War by being more like communists in the way the U.S. were communists, and they should have been funneling money to the abstract expressionist artists of the Soviet Union and better supported the arts. Did you ever think about that, Artemis? No, Bartleby, that doesn't make sense because then the people in the Soviet Union would have seen the rich people buying all this artwork and thought, wait, why are there still rich people? What's going on? Well, what was going on? Well, it's just very disappointing. I think you do remember that I don't fully believe in communism or capitalism. Yeah, I love it. It's some truly great podcasting material. So. The reason why I have a hard time believing in communism is that, though I do believe in the ideals, of course they all sound so wonderful, but in practice, it often falls short because, you see, as a government tries to intentionally eliminate the free market, what inevitably happens is that black markets take over. Ooh, sounds dark and mysterious. Well, only that these markets are off the book and unregulated. So when that happened in Russia, for instance, when they became the Soviet Union, well, in that circumstances, it created an oligarchy, that same oligarchy that you're suggesting that the Soviet Union give money to to buy whatever crazy artwork. Well, they were using that money to buy blue jeans. Blue jeans? Yes, and other Western products in the black market. Because what happened was, by the Soviet Union illegalizing all of these Western ideas and Western products, they only created more scarcity. And in that scarcity, they gave more value 
to those items, and then the oligarchy of Russia wanted those items more than anything, and meanwhile, the US and the CIA, with their Operation Dogleash... Operation Dogleash? That's the name of this entire thing we've been talking about, of providing money to the artists. They were giving these lefty artists a long leash in the money they were giving them, but they were still on a leash. Ah, wow. That's a really insulting name. Yes, I guess it is. So, as I was saying, the oligarchy in the Soviet Union, well, they pretty much fell for Operation The Long Leash just as much as everyone else. So really, when you think about it, Artemis, the entirety of the Soviet Union collapsing and communism and the fall of the wall in Berlin and all of that was pretty much done through the arts. Yes. Yes, I would agree with that. It seems that the paintbrush is more powerful than the nuclear warhead. Ooh, I like that. You know, honestly, I wonder if perhaps this same tactic was used in South Korea. Because if you look at, like, the rise of K-pop and the way that K-pop stars all live in a compound together and they get trained in how to do dance moves and mix dope beats that the kids in South Korea are going to love and then it turns out that kids around the world are going to love, it's like a super refined machine of pop and it's all derived as a weapon against the North Koreans. It's to make them get massive FOMO. Yeah, that's what this is. It's FOMO to fight communism. Yep, I made up my mind. The Soviet Union should have funneled money to their oligarchy and had their oligarchy buy like crazy cool artwork, not just the socialist realism. And then the Soviet Union wouldn't have fallen. The Soviet Union could have just actually funded the arts. They didn't need to have an oligarchy to fund the arts. They could have just actually made a program to give the money, like the way they did for the avant-garde artists of the 20s. Yeah, okay, sure. But, like, they have to have a way to help the artists become more popular. Unfortunately, a black market is a secret market. For artists to gain popularity, they need certain free market conditions. Okay, how about this? Here's an idea. Maybe they could have given everyone in the Soviet Union art bucks, like a kind of dollar distributed by the government to the people to buy some artwork with. And then they go out and buy some artwork with their art bucks. And the artists with more art bucks are the artists the government should be giving a platform to and distributing their artwork and things like that that duplicate pop culture. Because taking away, like, pop culture stuff and taking away also snooty art stuff from the Russian people and then just leaving them with, like, mediocre kitsch artwork that doesn't really go and try harder was... Honestly, like we said, it was the complete end of their entire ideology. And it has nothing to do with whether sharing stuff in a communal way is cool or not. That all got undermined because they didn't allow the arts to thrive. Imagine, Artemis. Imagine. I don't know. It seems like the average person in this scenario would have to save quite a bit of these art bucks to buy a piece of abstract expressionist art. 
I guess they'll have to give a bunch of art bucks to the oligarchs after all. Or maybe? No one will care about the snooty snooty art. Just like the Soviet black market wanted blue jeans and not paintings. Unfortunately, you're probably right. Imagine the USSR had art bucks, and that led to them to create comic books because the people were, you know, investing in the things that they liked with their art bucks that were provided by the state. And imagine that some creative person said, wow, let's have a super duper man who's going to go flying around and helping people and being kind. And like, imagine they did that. Artemis. How does it relate? Okay, well, there's a book. It's called Red Sun. It's a Elseworld of Superman. And an Elseworld is like a what if of Superman that's like a different than the regular version of Superman. And so it's this other version of Superman where he shows up on Earth like 12 hours later or 12 hours earlier, whatever. Like, because it's just a different time he got launched from Krypton. And in this version, he lands in the Soviet Union. And by landing in the Soviet Union, he just grows up there. And Russia and the USSR become extremely successful. And their ideology becomes the world hegemony. And it's the U.S. government that falls and collapses because the Russians had Superman. So what I'm asking is, what if the idea had crashed in Russia instead of America? Imagine if the USSR had invented Superman. What do you mean, what if the USSR had invented Superman? Well, in that scenario, maybe that's the thing that makes it so that the Soviet Union doesn't collapse the way they did. Why are you rooting for the Soviet Union to not collapse, Bartleby? What's going on here? Why are you rooting for this nonsense, absolutely sham of a government? Look, I'm not rooting for the Soviet Union. I'm just trying to explore some what-ifs of understanding how powerful art is and that we had an entire ideology collapse. And I think there's some value in exploring what if that ideology had employed other forms of standards of elevating the arts. You should read Trotsky. What's that supposed to mean? You know I don't like to read. And this has to do with what if the USSR invented Superman. Bear with me. Because then maybe there would be a Soviet Superman and the people of the Soviet Union would have been like, cool, cool, cool. We're the coolest people because we have fun stories and action-packed books. And we got crazy expressionist art that we don't need to have our oligarchy buy because we can use our art bucks to buy the expressionist art. It's not that different than the American scene, let's be honest. No. No, it, it really, it really isn't. Like, the U.S. is pretty much very similar in that the pop culture side of art and the kitschy pop culture depiction of reality is kind of really, really pulled ahead because as we mentioned last week, the academic art people made themselves irrelevant when they declared that art was dead. Bartleby, how could academic art be irrelevant when we are currently now basing two entire episodes on art theory? Ooh, is that a paradox? I think it might be. Well, anyways, that's beside my point. My point is, if they had invented Superman comics, they would have created a thriving culture that didn't get so much FOMO 
in the face of corporations. And the CIA's long leash wouldn't have been so intimidating if they'd given a longer leash to their own artists. That's what they should have done. And instead, what's happened is the Soviet Union collapsed. And while the Soviet Union was drowning in its own socialist realist world of kitsch, kitsch propaganda had been taking over the world in the form of corporate media. Because corporations like to play it safe. So they stick to realism and they don't have a lot to say. So it's all superficial stuff. So basically it's all kitsch. Like nearly all the art in the world. Oh no, Artemis. Do you think this means that Metacosmos is kitsch? No, no. This is hardly realism. And we aren't really popular enough to be pop culture. This is more avant-garde. Yeah, we are so much more than avant-garde, Artemis. We are the front line of compassionate perspectives in a world drowning in its own corporate kitsch hellscape of endless media, now bolstered by a perpetual output of superficial entertainment. Very dire situation you're describing there, Bartleby. It's actually the perfect place for me to bring it back around to why it was that I wanted to retract my, uh, not statement, my tone, earlier in the episode, and why it was that I meant to be sarcastic. What were you talking about when you were sarcastic? Well, I was saying that we didn't have to worry about the extreme amounts of propaganda because multiplicity says that there are so many perspectives and ways to interpret the propaganda that that would then nullify the propaganda. But unfortunately, I don't think it does. I think it's its own form of propaganda. How so? Well, okay. Like, when you have so much information out there, that's a way of clouding the truth. This is a common form of propaganda in which you're like, look, there's so many perspectives. Oh, no. Which one do we decide to use? And which one do we decide to throw out? And it's really hard to say. And it's even like a tactic that's used by, like, Nazis today when they're debating. They're like, you know... What is perspective? What is meaning? Maybe my want for a genocide is actually a thing that has value. And that's nonsense. But they package it using postmodernist theory. And then there's just so many ideas in the broad pool of ideas. Of course, people have different perspectives and there's multiplicity. And that sows division. I'm not so sure if it's a sowing of division and just that people are different and that there's a natural division amongst the people. Perhaps that we should be fostering art that creates harmony amongst the people. Ooh. That sounds like a great metamodernist project, Artemis. Do you want to work on that one with me? What are you suggesting? I don't know. Maybe we could, like, make a podcast where we explore ideas that help us find value and appreciation and compassion for each other. Is that what you think we're doing? Yeah. The best podcast that has ever existed. And that is my point. Everyone should listen to Metacosmos. Yeah. Okay. I think we should just wrap it up from here. You know, support for Metacosmos comes from listeners like you. You're the bestest, most wonderfulest, most wowest people because you're following a conversation like this one. I don't think anyone's following this conversation. 
Yeah, they're following it. They're going to their friends and being like, Dude, you gotta hear what this sock is talking about. No, no one's doing that, Bartleby. And also, the people who go to patreon.com slash bluefoot, I know you're out there. I know you're loving this. And thanks a lot. You're the best. Because you're helping support Isaac Bluefoot, our producer. Isaac makes our website, and he makes a bunch of podcasts for us, like this one, and the Kinetic Paranormal Society podcast, and also, Isaac produces his own podcast called Superman Son of Al, the unauthorized biography of Clark Kent. And it's super awesome, and super cool, and you can find it by looking up Superman Son of Al, wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah. Also, additional support for Metacosmos comes from Humboldt Hot Air. HumboldtHotAir.org. Live streaming from Humboldt County, music and conversations and wonderful things. All from Humboldt. We love Humboldt. Yeah. So you guys are great. I really appreciate you. And see you next week. Bye-bye. I love you. So... Did you actually retract anything? Oh, yeah. I totally retracted exactly what I said. Yeah, sure I did. I absolutely retracted it, Artemis.